This is On and Off Your Mat podcast episode 21, Dharma and the Bhagavad Gita. My name is Erica and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Allison Smith. Allison is a San Francisco-based yoga teacher known for her playful fire, inquisitive nature, and technical expertise. With over a decade of teaching experience, Allison has a down-to-earth approach that makes the complexity of yoga easier to understand and relevant to your daily life. She prides herself in teaching more than the poses, and today we sat down to talk about that and her big teaching team of the year. As always, I really appreciate your support, so as you leave a review on iTunes or on your iPhone podcast app, you automatically enter our giveaway. Once more, Athleta is supporting this podcast in their effort to ignite a community of strong women who lift each other up and is giving out a $75 shop card. So if you want to know more, stay tuned. I'll give more details at the end of the show, and I'll announce the winner of our last giveaway. Quick last thing before we start, thank you so much if you signed up for my upcoming workshop. It is now sold out. So if you're interested and you missed your chance, then you can sign up for my newsletter in the meantime and you'll be the first to know next time I do it again. On that note, take a listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Hi, Allison. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. You are very welcome. Thank you for having me. I met Allison in one of our workshops. Her presence when she's teaching is kind of hypnotic. She's warm, <laughs> passionate, and super knowledgeable. As a student, she made me feel seen, and I connected with her right away. I felt this deep trust. If you can't tell, I really look up to her as a teacher. She's been offering some very special things outside of her regular classes, and one of them is called a yoga club. And when I saw the format, I felt really inspired, and I thought that'd be a great thing to talk about on the podcast. So I invited her to join. Allison, before we dig in our subject of today, can you tell us a bit about yourself and your yoga journey? Yes, and thank you for asking. I think the origin stories of yogis are always uh, very revealing, even about who they become as, as practitioners and teachers. I agree. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but we, my husband and I just opened a commercial space and we just hung this statue And this statue actually belonged to my grandfather. And it made me realize that some of my yoga roots went back farther than perhaps I'd ever imagined. Mm. And uh, no one really, my grandfather passed away and no one really knows where this statue came from or its history. But my family's always referred to it as the guardian. And it's got some interesting, like, Buddhist themes in it. And, um, but it's just something that looks very ancient and archaic. And I'll mention too, that I grew up in Southern Indiana. So it was like the only thing I'd ever seen like that mm-hmm. outside of books. Um, I was very mesmerized by it as a kid. And then perhaps that also opened up the gates for me to be interested in Eastern traditions and mysticism, because as soon as I got my hands on anything on yoga or meditation, I was enthralled as a teenager. Mm. When I went to college, I had, I was in college in Chicago and I would kind of skip in and out of yoga classes, but I came from more of a sports background. I played soccer. Um, so I was more inclined to do something like go running Mm -hmm. or go to like a kickboxing class. Although I always enjoyed the yoga. While I was in college, I started to have uh, significant challenges with what would be called cycles of depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that is very similar to Arjuna's dilemma in the Bhagavad Gita, 
you know, kind of seeing this, this landscape and not really knowing how to act. I felt very constrained by like expectations um, from my family that were on me and really had like a deep desire and calling to do something different. I didn't know what that was, but I knew that that kind of what was expected of me was not going to work for me. And what was expected of you at the time? Oh, to be like a lawyer and oh, move back home to Indiana and <laughs> Part of my soul wanted to just like go explore and and do some do anything but that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So similar to Arjuna, not knowing how to act, I was I was basically like collapsed on the floor of life and um, knew I needed to also pick myself up and figure this out. And I knew that the only place I felt really good was after a yoga class. Mm. So instead of going sporadically, I started going very regularly and I actually had no physical capacity for the practice. I came from more of a sports background, so I could not touch my toes. I distinctly remember bridge pose being like one of the most agonizing experiences (laughs) of my life. Um, So I actually never expected to get good at it. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't one of those things I was like, wow, I'm going to be able to do all this stuff one day. I was just like, I'm just here to get to the end of class (laughs) and get that that peace and joy and and tranquility of mind that came from it. And um, what's funny about that is like I was like, okay, so I feel good for about three to four hours after a yoga class what if I went twice a day? So I was like, then I'd feel good for like about eight hours. Wow. That's a nice plan. It was very strategic. (laughs) And, um, so I started going to yoga more regularly, um, sometimes two times a day or practicing because I couldn't go all the time. I worked in, um, restaurants at that time. Uh, so I had kept odd hours and, um, So in my kind of quest for feeling differently through yoga, I ended up practicing at home, just doing what I remembered from class, Mm -hmm. um, reading books. I would like lay out like Iyengar's Light on Yoga or um, Jiva Mukti Yoga or the Desi Kachar book, The Heart of Yoga, and practice what I saw in those books. Mm -hmm. So also very early on in my practice, um, I developed a home practice, which is quite unusual, and became also a way that I was able to sustain my practice even when I moved to Maui and and didn't have a teacher or studio or even the means to go to classes for, for periods of time. So that created a, um, consistency Mm -hmm. in my practice that I think also yielded greater results, um, physically, but also mentally. I really got what I wanted from yoga in terms of like being able to manage my mind and then feel like I had more of a capacity to act in my life. Mm -hmm. And that was deeply transformative and opened up a whole different um, world for me. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) And now as a teacher, how does it evolve from just teaching regular classes into all those other offerings? Yeah, so um, I've taught classes for 12 years now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think because of my 
personal practice, I was also very early teaching clients. And mm-hmm. that's thanks to one of my teacher. One of my teachers didn't give me the choice about teaching. He was like, you're teaching. Um, I'm leaving. You have to take this classes and these clients. And so the, with the work with the clients gave me a lot of insight on the customization and personalization of yoga, how mm-hmm. different people needed different things. And I think that also made me interested in giving people different experiences of yoga. So after years of teaching classes, um, offering more workshops to give people more insight, more knowledge, Mm -hmm. um, that led to trainings, immersions, retreats. And one of the things that was very common after an immersion or especially a retreat, because a retreat is kind of like a very condensed and, and potent experience, mm-hmm. but students wanted to have more of that experience. Yeah. Something that's more regular, but also more convenient or more bite-sized yeah. than an immersion or retreat. And especially once I was married, I understood that, that taking a whole weekend off to be in the yoga studio was just seemed impossible. Like, mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to spend time with my partner Um, and then I better understood the predicament that most yogis and householders are in of juggling this deep desire to practice and learn with the, um, time they need to spend with family and friends and, and other life activities. Sure. So the answer for that was, um, what I started to call yoga club and yoga clubs, like a series of workshops uh, I structure it similar to how you would structure a curriculum in a course mm-hmm. in that you sign up for the semester and then we have some trajectory of study. And uh, yoga club was partially because there was a book club flavor to it. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted students to be able to study text uh, in conjunction with their physical practice because Again, students were often asking, how do I learn more? How do I explore this? And I would recommend books and they would often feel like it was over their head or they didn't understand how it would relate to the physical posture practice, which is very valid. Mm -hmm. And um, so yoga club is kind of like part book club, part asana workshop, and also part of a way for students to connect with one another in a community and have conversations about their experiences and their practice. Mm -hmm. What are the concepts you're taking on this year and why did you choose those? Yeah, this year we are studying the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. And I initially started this with, with different things. We studied like the chakras and we studied the bandhas and then we, everyone wanted to study the yoga sutras of Patanjali. Um, and we studied that because it's, it's very popular in the yoga community. Mm-hmm. And my eyes were always set on the Bhagavad Gita because I think it's a little bit more challenging to wrestle with, especially for practitioners of asana. Yeah. And it's something that's much more applicable to living in yoga. Yeah. And so I was very excited to offer this because the Bhagavad Gita is one of those cherished 
texts of the yoga tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, also there are wonderful books written by practitioners or students of yoga about their experiences as, as practitioners that relate to the Bhagavad Gita. For example, one of the books we'll read is a book by Stephen Cope called The Great Work of Your Life, mm-hmm. which is about living in Dharma. And it, it kind of weaves the story of the Bhagavad Gita with the story of other, um, what we might consider exceptional humans. Um, he uses Henry David Thoreau, Harriet Tubman, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, and we we look back on them as great beings, but dur- in their life, they were normal humans who, through their desire to do good, made extraordinary decisions or an extraordinary impact on other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so he uses the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita to frame these great lives and how we can all live great lives and, and we don't need to have some big historical impact but to feel like we're living fully and authentically. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, in the, the fall, we'll read uh, Paths to God, which is a book by Ram Das about his experiences with the devotion and the, the bhakti aspect of the Bhagavad Gita. And for me, as a teacher, these books help students get a richer more modern perspective of the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. And as a practitioner, uh, my teacher, when I asked him what to read, he said, first is the Bhagavad Gita. So I went to the bookstore and I looked through all these translations and found one I liked, which ended up being the Stephen Mitchell translation because it's, it's digestible. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was, I read it and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And once I had other books to reference and to to kind of experience other people's interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, that's when I act, it started to have more meaning and more relevance. Sure. So how did you use these books and the concepts of the Gita to separate your yoga club in those three pieces, in those three semesters? Great question. So... First, I wanted to start with something that made the Bhagavad Gita more interesting for students. And the Stephen Cope book does a beautiful job of that. Uh, He takes the first word of the Bhagavad Gita, which is Dharma, Mm -hmm. and he translates that word to vocation or purpose and then uses it to talk about these great beings who can be inspirations to us all. But while he's kind of sussing out some of the the concepts of Dharma, he's also telling some of the story of the Bhagavad Gita. Mm. So it makes the Gita really, um, it it gives the the mythology of it, the story of it, and also the, the deep teachings of it. And so this to me primes the students with this major concept of the Gita, Dharma, Mm -hmm. and also makes it something they can understand as an element working in their lives and everyone's lives. 
while also giving a little bit of the story so that you're you're kind of hungry for more. By the time you finish Stephen Cope's book, you're like, I want to read the Bhagavad Gita. So then I think they'll be able to dive into the translation with more relish and curiosity and be able to apply some of what they already know about Dharma to the Bhagavad Gita. And and also very early in the Bhagavad Gita, there are there's the talk on Dharma and actions and you know, there's the famous saying of yoga is skill in action. Mm -hmm. And also that you are entitled to your actions, but not the fruits of your actions. And I think those are very rich teachings for us as modern yogis who have jobs and relationships. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of good things in here, and I want to kind of go a little bit more granular in each of one. Yeah. Um, Let's start with Dharma. So you said concept of Dharma is purpose. Is that in their definition something that's super individual and that is only like the right course of action just for you depending on different things like time, place, situation? Yeah, Dharma. Wow. Um, It's one of those – Stephen Cope likens Dharma to one of those – this might date my age, but those sponge creatures, you know, that they're like in a little tiny capsule, a little uh-huh. tiny ball, and yeah, then you yeah, put yeah. them in water and they just blow up, right? <laughs> the, the Dharma is like that. It's this little word that that expands into many different meanings uh-huh. and many different shapes. You'll often see Dharma translated as law, uh-huh. justice, duty, righteousness, But in this case, it's more about like individual mission, right? Stephen Cope will translate it to purpose or vocation. Okay. And uh, I also, I, I make that clear because I tend to lean towards Dharma as something that's not so grand, Mm -hmm. but something that's very accessible moment to moment. And in that definition, then we can have more than one dharma at a time. Uh, yeah, I think I think dharma is a choice. Dharma is a choice we make all the time. Mm. And I'm also a student of Jyotish, which is Vedic astrology and places great emphasis on how we act on a day-to-day basis and the the, the ripple of that over time, mm-hmm. too. So you, and, Sorry, go ahead. And I think to understand Dharma in a certain way, we also have to understand that the yoga tradition is always operating on two different levels. There's kind of the material plane, the the plane of our daily lives, and then there's a spiritual plane. Mm -hmm. And to me, part of Dharma is bringing in that, that spiritual awareness. And it doesn't mean that you have to be Hindu or even religious what it means is that you're you're considering the greater good. You're considering what's right and just for all beings with your actions, not just acting from like selfish or egotistical motives. Mm-hmm. And then when Stephen Cope uses it as vocation, he's also looking for it from that realm and that when you bring in this inspiration to your life and you you follow this this kind of heart calling that your life will make the world better in a certain way um or it'll it'll help others 
or be kind of like a light in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. So you think dharma is totally linked to free will. Like we yes. choose our dharma, we choose those we choose these actions every day. It's not only that we choose the path to get to our dharma that was kind of either chosen but for us or like by us but unconsciously. It's very conscious in your opinion. Yes. And one of my teachers once said with dharma that he translates dharma to use everything to your advantage mm-hmm. in that you know you're you're born with certain inclinations and talents mm-hmm. and also what what we we or others might consider weaknesses mm-hmm. and he would say dharma is when you you take all of that and you use all of that to your advantage you use all of it to grow you use all of it for greater awareness you use all of that to act to the best of your ability and with the greater good in mind. And that, that's also where we get, you know, it's interesting when you look at these different translations of the word Dharma, law, you know, duty, mm-hmm. uh, justice, but then you get righteousness. Mm. So there, there's kind of this higher moral imperative yeah. as soon as you, you get words like justice and righteousness. And I think that's where we, we see the intention to bring together this um, spiritual and material relationship, the, the kind of higher good, higher order, and also the, the day-to-day operations. So that's in a very global, like it has that global impact. If we look more to ourselves to start, do you see mm-hmm. a link between like dharma and feeling successful in life or even dharma and happiness? Yes. There's often a metaphor of a dice game they play in the, you'll see it come up in the yoga tradition. They even play it in the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita is part of the Mahabharata. But this dice game has both coins that you move around on a board and dice. Mm -hmm. And the dice represent fate. They represent things that happen. And we all know that sometimes things just happen. You can't control certain aspects of life. And then there's the coins and the coins represent free will. Hmm. And what the image is trying to tell us is that things will happen, things that are beyond your control. Mm-hmm. And Dharma and the, the free will component is no matter what's thrown your way, you're able to act skillfully, to, to move along the board, move along the currents of life with skill and clarity. And I think that that most people feel successful when they feel like they're on purpose mm-hmm. or they're moving skillfully. And, you know, studies have been shown that when once you reach like a certain amount of income or resources, you know, when your basic needs are met, mm-hmm. more doesn't necessarily radically increase your sense of happiness or fulfillment. Mm-hmm. We see that happiness and fulfillment come more from an attitude mm-hmm. or a perspective or that people feel like they're in control of their life or that they have a certain amount of agency. Mm-hmm. And so I think in this way, Dharma and living from a place of Dharma gives us a sense of happiness or fulfillment or contentment because we feel like we're able to move through life on our own terms 
and to manage or, or deal with or be responsive to whatever arises. And I think where people feel super disempowered or even depressed or anxious is when they feel like they're not going to be able to handle what comes out of them or they're, they're never going to be able to get what they want or desire or feel differently than they currently are. Yeah, that sounds like the way you introduced yourself in the beginning a little bit with that, like going to Absolutely. law school. So I assume that now you feel like you're living your dharma more than you did like 15 years ago. Yes, yes. And I feel that part of that, too, is feeling like I'm able to make a difference in the world mm -hmm. and contribute. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people want to feel that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if people are like starting to ask themselves, like, okay, am I living my dharma? Like they want to reflect on that. What are the telling signs that either they are or that they're not at all? Other than like That's that feeling of being, you know, happy or feeling successful or feeling fulfilled. Is there anything else to look at? That's a really good question. I think that happy is kind of a tricky word because yeah. it can seem fleeting. Um, one of my teachers uses a word that, that can sound very bland, <laughs> but I think it's actually one of the best descriptions of it I've ever heard. He says, you want to cultivate a sense of deep okayness. Mm -hmm. And I love that term because it implies a sense of well-being. Yeah. Regardless of the circumstances. Yeah, what it brings up for me is that when that okayness, you don't have fear and you have a, a sense of deep trust into what will unfold. Right. Mm. And the ability to persevere mm -hmm. with hardship. Mm -hmm. Because the Bhagavad Gita is one part of a greater epic and the, the characters in the Bhagavad Gita experience great hardship. Yeah. And the book by Stephen Cope, which talks about dharma and dharma as a purpose or vocation, the, the examples he gives of the, the kind of great beings, they experienced tremendous hardship and difficulty and even what most people would classify as failure. Mm-hmm. And they were only great by, you know, kind of historical standards because they persevered. Something in them kept them going. Yeah. And I think that that is part of feeling like you're living in Dharma is that you you have something that you can rest in. There's a there's a faith there mm -hmm. and that gives you a resilience and a capacity to bring forth what's your your calling or what you feel in your heart or what you feel are your your talents and your your gifts to this world and you're also able to do that because you're not attached to the results. Mm, yeah. Let's go into that. <laughs> that concept is really challenging for a lot of people. Even on the mat, it's I think it's the place that people start to feel okay with it. They're like, "Okay, I can make effort and I can let go of the fact that I can't do the splits." Let's say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But when you put that in your life every day, like I'm going to work, make efforts and let go of the fruits of those efforts. I think it's a very challenging concept to actually apply. So, why does the Bhagavad Gita teaches that as a core concept not attached to the fruit of our efforts. Mm -hmm. um, Is that for the greater good you were talking about before? Like Partially, for mm -hmm. sure. And I think a big part of that is to eliminate suffering. 
Yes. Suffering is an interesting word because I think for the first several years of practice, even though I can't, this is so funny, but even though I came to the practice suffering tremendously, (laughs) I did not think I was suffering, right? I was like, I'm not suffering, you know, because Mm -hmm. I didn't, I wasn't experiencing like visceral physical pain, Yeah, you know? And uh, so I I don't know that suffering is the best translation of what what's often presented in Sanskrit as dukkha. Mm. Alan Watts, I once heard him translate dukkha to chronic frustration. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the chronic frustration comes from trying to solve unsolvable problems. <laughs> I love this because I think that most of us, myself included, do this like a thousand times a day. Yeah, Like we'll be in a certain situation maybe with a loved one and you'll want it to be different than it is. Yes. Or you'll be at work and you want it to be different than it is. Or you do something for someone and you want them to respond different than they did. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of this low grade, chronic, ongoing cycle of expectation and disappointment. Yeah. For a lot of people, that attachment to the fruit, right, the, of the result of the effort is what is keeping them motivated to do something. So how do we channel our attention or focus our attention in another way to stay on track into what we want to accomplish, whether it's with dharma or in relationships? That's a really good point because they they even see, say that our part of our brain chemistry is wired so that we're motivated by our expectations. Mm-hmm. So I think part of what we have to do is find the joy in what we're doing Mm. and a different type of perspective on why we're doing what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, I think that's key. And, uh, you know, so it becomes, for example, you give someone a gift because you want to give them a gift, not because you want something in return. Yeah. And that's a pretty um, basic example But there's all kinds of ways in which we engage with the world where we're doing X to get Y. Yeah. And as soon as we do X just to do X, then I think we we become much more fulfilled instantaneously because there's no waiting for the other thing or there's no disappointment that the other thing didn't happen. Yeah. And I think you're right, too, that one of the beautiful ways to cultivate this quality and change in perspective is on the mat where, for example, if you're, if you're in the practice and you're doing a pose, do the pose for the sake of the pose, not to get to the next one, Mm. not even to like get your hamstrings more open. Mm -hmm. For example, like a, a hamstring stretch, if we're using the example of the splits, And then, you know, I think that also opens up a level of appreciation or inquiry and sensitivity to whatever you're doing in the moment. Mm. And I would imagine we've all felt this as practitioners of yoga at some point in time. I think it's actually part of the reason people come back to the practice for years. Yeah. Because there's only so many downward facing dogs you can do. (laughs) on the quest to something more before you'd either stop doing it or you start looking for, for kind of a deeper experience in that particular pose. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
One of my uh, Ashtanga teachers once said, you know, with the, the set sequences, we want people to get a little bit bored. <laughs> and I always found that interesting. But it's like if you if you stop hunting poses or experiences or the bigger pose, then you can actually start to really be sit. Yeah. And be in the pose. And there, there's something kind of beautiful and magnificent and impossible to, to really communicate through words in that. So letting go of the fruit of her effort is a way to be more present. Yes, <clears throat> absolutely. I, I didn't think of it like that before. That's, that's amazing. On the other hand, you mentioned in the beginning devotion, right? So mm. devotion for me is the idea of offering to mm -hmm. the divine. So is letting go of the fruit of her effort, in turn, you take that and you offer it instead. Is that also kind of parallel there? Like you offer your effort or you offer the practice or you offer whatever you're doing to something, either if it's just a greater good, if you don't have like a close relationship with religion in that way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's, um, there's this interesting term that because I didn't come from a family that, that had a religious background and, um, so God was never a word that felt very comfortable to me. Yeah. And I didn't uh, start yoga for any spiritual purpose. So it took a long time for me to even wrap my head around ideas like devotion. Yeah. And the concept that really helped me was one that's a big part of actually the yoga sutras of Patanjali. And it is a concept, uh, Ishvara Pranidhana, mm -hmm. which, you know, it, it means surrender and devotion, Pranidhana. And Ishvara is an interesting word because it's like a placeholder term. It's a, it's an intentionally generic term mm. that in a way means put whatever works for you here. <laughs> so whether you're, you're giving up expectation and attachment to God or to some representation of God, or if you're giving it up to something a little more amorphous but comfortable like the universe or the greater good, You know, the this particular concept says, like, whatever works for you, get connected to that. And also with surrender and devotion, you know, devotion's one thing, but surrender was also very difficult to wrap my head around because I had a connotation of it being something weak mm -hmm. or passive. However, the tradition, again, want you to surrender in a way that actually allows you to be more powerful, more supported, and also more open. Because it's like if we are striving to get a certain result, there may be a thousand other results that, that would actually be even better. Mm. But if we're not open to that, and we're, we're kind of struggling to get through this teeny tiny little hole of what we want, we might miss a great gateway of opportunity. And I think we've probably all had those experiences where something happened that we initially considered bad or um, we labeled it as a failure or not getting what we wanted. But then that kind of detour ended up one of, being one of the best things that ever happened to us. Mm -hmm. And I think surrender and devotion can be like that, is that you're you're doing the best you can in the moment and you're you're open to what comes out of that. And I think this also allows us to be a little more relaxed, mm -hmm. actually, with what we do. And I once had a, 
kind of an image come to mind when I was contemplating this of being a little leaf in a big river of life. Mm. And I can't, as a tiny little organism, I can't really control the big currents of life around me. Yeah. And then it actually made it much more beautiful and uh, easeful and even exciting to be on this kind of grand adventure and to know I wasn't at the reins and that I had the free will to respond to whatever came up in whatever way I chose. Yeah, that's beautiful. Another little aspect of devotion and the idea of the divine in general, especially if you don't have a strong connection to God per se, is the teachings that the divine is already within us, right? Mm-hmm. How does that mm-hmm. connect here? Or how does that connect to your dharma, maybe? It's an interesting question. So in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, it's a conversation between Krishna, who is a warrior, mm-hmm. and or Krishna, who's, who's considered like God incarnate, and then um, Arjuna, who's the warrior. And Arjuna is having like this mental meltdown. And, uh, you know, Krishna's part of his teaching is that I'm here with you. I'm always with you. I'm always guiding you and helping you. And I think that part of the idea of grace Mm -hmm. is that we don't have to struggle so much or try to control all these outcomes. Mm -hmm. Because there, there's a, a divine force acting from inside of us and all around us. Yeah. And I think that too, because in a way, like like you asked earlier, if we can't control the action, if we can't control the outcome and if we're, we're not doing things for the fruits, how do we stay motivated to act? And I think that's also in a way an argument or challenge people have with surrender or devotion too. Yeah. Is... This and it, it's I think it's less about motivation and it's more about a desire to control. Mm-hmm. So then if you're acting for the sake of your actions, not the fruit, and if you believe there's a bigger force or there's a, a spark of divinity within you, then there's a relaxation that creates a great sense of peace and fulfillment and contentment. Yeah. And even if you don't believe that there's a divinity inside of you, maybe that idea or that image of Krishna could be like your own intuition and your own inner wisdom and knowledge without having anything to do with anything divine at all. Right. Mm. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the intuition and inner wisdom because the yoga tradition places a high value on intuition. Mm -hmm. However, the intuition that they... The word they use for intuition is often buddhi, mm. which can also mean like a higher intellect. And it has to do also with like imagination and creativity. And intuition only comes from free flowing intellect. And I, I mentioned this because sometimes I think in the West, we interpret intu- intuition as something that doesn't have a lot of uh, ground mm. or a little willy nilly or woo woo. Mm -hmm. But in the the yoga tradition, intuition is something that comes from the free flow of intellect. It's, it has more to do with inspiration and also that you've already done some rigorous intellectual work or study or self-awareness and have a strong capacity to, to know yourself 
and also know when something feels right and to, to go with it. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's like that we, similar to what we do on the mat, we have to learn the poses and the alignment of the poses and also work with some of our patterns, our strengths and our weaknesses. But then we'll have those moments where the pose just feels right. Yeah. It's kind of seems. And we want to stay there or really be there and soak it up. And that, in a way, is a form of intuition, inner knowing. Mm. And it, it's come through you, through the work you've already done. Yeah. And it usually when we have those experiences, they're also a little bit timeless and very full and rich. Mm-hmm. even though it, it might be a very common pose that we've done thousands of times. And I think that also is what Dharma is striving for, is those rich, timeless, precious moments mm. that can come from doing common things. That's awesome. So I know um, this year's yoga club is pretty much sold out. Am I right? The... um Yoga club in the spring is sold out mm-hmm. and most of the year long, the year long program is full. I'll have a few spots available in the summer semester and fall semester. Okay. Congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. Did you expect so much interest? You know, every time I've done this, it's, um, I've been doing yoga club as a series of semesters every year for, uh, this is our third year. And it's always done very well, um, again, because I think that the program is very palatable. It's yeah. very easy for people to put into their lives. Uh, I did not expect the – this is the first time I did a year-long program, and that mm. was really wonderful. I think people are definitely interested in the Gita, yeah. but also the idea that they can have a way to study for the whole year. A container. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's great. Do you already know what you'll be doing next year? No, I don't. No? <laughs> I, um, yeah, I usually, I have, you know, I've really wanted to study the Shiva Sutras. Mm-hmm. And so that's on my radar, whether it'll happen next year or, or in a year or two. I also, I really love how much we're seeing in the yoga community with the physical anatomy. Mm-hmm and uh, kinesiology, and also the being able to link that with some of the energetic anatomy and imagery of the yoga tradition. Mm. So like T.S. Little's book, um, Yoga of the Subtle Body, is a really phenomenal example of that. And I think it's also a way that students can study and enrich their practice or classes. So that might be something for next year too. Hmm. There's always a little bit Sounds of that good. in, in the yoga club, but we might completely focus on that. So mm-hmm. anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I know in the beginning you mentioned the space, the the club itself or anything I haven't mentioned or asked about. Yeah. We talked a lot about yoga club and, and just how I came up with the structure and I'll tie that into the space. Part of what I see in the yoga community is that yoga has become more popular than ever, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I find that many of my students are craving more knowledge behind the tradition, which is why I ended up doing yoga club in particular. And then the creation of the space was because I was always struggling to find venues to offer these programs Yeah, because yoga club is quite small. Mm-hmm. It's 12 to 16 students. And, um, I like teaching in those smaller group formats because I can really 
engage with my students. And I think they also connect with one another more fully. Yeah. So the, the space is an experiment and it was created to be a container for other teachers to do similar programs, to see clients, one-on-one work, uh, small group programs, day-long retreats. And uh, so hopefully, you know, there is more interest with my students, other teacher students for this education in the yoga tradition. And I hope that we see more of that in the community as a whole, because I think it'll keep people practicing and continue to make the practice rich and rewarding and hopefully even world-changing. Well, thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you putting all this together and then contributing to the yoga community and the conversation of yoga. Yeah. I'll put all your info in the show notes, but in the meantime, what's the best place for people to find you if they want to connect, if they want to study with you or just know about the future projects? Yeah. My website is allisonsmithyoga.com. Mm-hmm. And there you can find programs as well as a blog. I send out newsletters and little kind of uh, class themes each week. So there's lots of resources on the website for all kinds of things. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was super inspiring chatting with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We have other great guests coming up, so make sure to subscribe. Now, if you want to make my day or you want to help other people find this podcast or you want your chance to win a $75 shop card from Athleta, all you have to do is head on to iTunes or on your podcast app on your iPhone and write a review. As you leave your review, you automatically enter a giveaway, and I announce the winner on the next episode. You don't have to do anything more than that. If you're newer to review, you can check out the show notes for instruction and for more info about our guests of today. You can also go to my website, ericabelanger.com slash blog dash podcast for those two things, or to sign up for my newsletter if you want to be in the known for future events. Last episode was also supported by Athleta. Thank you so much if you left a review. The winner of that giveaway is iTunes user Sasha Merkin, 1982. Sasha said, I had been looking for a podcast to help support my practice, and I am so grateful that I stumbled upon On and Off Your Mat. This podcast is perfect for anyone, whether beginner or advanced, looking to deepen their understanding of yoga and gain insight from like-minded others in the yoga community. Erica asked a very thoughtful question, and she has a gentle and sweet presence in her interviews. The guests she hosts are all wonderful, and I'm looking forward to more episodes. See, it's that simple. Thank you so much, Sasha, for your comment. You can DM me on Instagram or send me an email at erica.belanger at gmail.com, and I'll send you your shop cards. Once again, guys, thank you for joining us, and until next time.